But hello and welcome to Podhard, everybody! <laughs> Exakt, den, den där inlevelsen ska vi ha. Hello and welcome to Podhard with me, Jonas Högberg and Anders Schultqvist. Hello there, Anders. We have uh, finally reached the year 1922. Oh man, it feels like it's been forever, but finally we're here at the this fantastic action year. Or what do you say, Anders? Isn't this one of the lesser years so far? Oh, you didn't catch my sarcasm. Okay, well... I should have been more oozy, I guess, in my approach. No, but but actually, uh, I've been thinking, mm, I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, we, we've both been a bit uh, disappointed with 1922. Um, we thought 1921 was a bit of a letdown from 1920, and uh, the letdowns are continuing. So this is even worse than 1921. But, nonetheless, we have managed to pick out a couple of uh, movies that uh, still have some nice shit to talk about. I mean, personally, I I guess the big part of this whole project is for me to see a bunch of stuff that I haven't seen. But another, a small part is to show that uh, silent air movies can be just uh, fun action movies as well because I've, I've seen propping up at times these texts that you have to apply the right glasses and uh, put it in context and stuff and I, I just ah, get out of here let's blow shit up we've definitely seen some crazy shit especially in the tense in these short uh, movies but I mean There, there are good stuff going on, but there are a lot of saggy narrative and drama and melodrama. Uh, man, that is very hard to overcome, actually. Yeah, ex- exactly. I, I think we've seen some very gr- good, uh, almost timeless stuff. But this uh, experimentation in incorporation of narrative structures into action cinema has been uh, tough on it, <laughs> I would say. And is to this day. Narrative is still a, a thing that uh, action movies sometimes uh, struggle with. They feel that they have a need to have a narrative to ease the action in. But, you know, the action movies that go the distance and, you know, is all about the action. Those are the best action movies. So, (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm not going to beat around the bush. I can like a good narrative, but it needs to be clearly structured or, yeah, have have something uh, (laughs) going. Well, I I, th- I feel it has to be related to the action, uh, a lot of it. Um, I mean, look at Mad Max Fury Road, for example. Extremely simple narrative uh, and almost action all the way through. Perfect way to implement it, in my mind. Uh, but anyway, uh, we're talking 1922. And, of course, 
we have our comedy heroes doing movies this year. Harold Lloyd makes his first uh, feature-length movie. I think he made um, a short movie that he made a bit longer that became his first feature. But Grandma's Boy, that we will be talking about now, was the first movie that he planned as a feature movie. And it's a very... <laughs> it's story-heavy, unfortunately, this movie. Uh, about uh, Harold being a bully at school, and now when he's trying to um, woo a girl in adult age, he's being bullied by the same bully from school uh, over the girl. And yeah, pretty much that's but that's it. <laughs> I, I mean, for, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from an ac action perspective, I would say the the main interest is the big end fight. Uh, we, we can just uh, skip ahead. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Although I would like to um, infer that uh, he um, has an encounter with a hobo <laughs> early on, Harold Lloyd. Uh, and the hobo has this fantastic um, uh, appearance. Uh, he looks uh, sort of like Jason Robards, like uh, Sergio Leone's um, villains. You know, the, that fantastic face that you, you know, creature-wise and, and sweaty and dirty and fantastic close-up on this uh, hobo guy. Uh, <laughs> worth a look, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> so th these are the scenes of interest. A close-up of a hobo <laughs> and uh, full-swinging, uh, prolonged, uh, brawly fight. We've noticed that Harold Lloyd uh, really likes to use his arms and legs in very broad patterns. Uh, when he runs, he runs with his legs and his, and his arms all the way out in a swirling manner. And uh, the same when he uh, fights someone. I mean, his arms are everywhere. But there's a scene where they just stand and hit each other in the face. <laughs> repeatedly yeah very funny <laughs> taking turns that is really good <laughs> because it looks pretty powerful these hits in the silent era <laughs> it's a combination i guess of of cranking and uh, i don't know <laughs> almost looked like uh, full contact it's a moving camera as well yeah that's that's the shot uh, of the sequence to note I would say that the camera is prompted on a car and that they are moving the car little by little uh, backwards as uh, the two uh, brawlers, uh, you know, stagger towards the camera. It get a really nice feel of, of um, uh, you know, you're getting propelled into the action. And I like the way that the other guy just wants to get away. So he stumbles away and stops to take a breather and look over his shoulder and this relentless Lloyd <laughs> is coming at him. As I said in the 1921 episode, I think Lloyd carries the action uh, mantle these years because I think Buster Keaton dabbles a bit more in the comedy bits and trying to incorporate those into some kind of story narratives and isn't as heavy on the the stunt set pieces no i i guess um buster has uh, two great uh, chase scenes both in cops and in daydreams um and cops of course is the most well known of these where you know he's being chased by the entire police force of los angeles i guess it, there there are so many policemen 
uh, on screen that uh, I mean you can't count them all. Uh, there has to be hundreds of policemen. It uh, feels like he's trying to top uh, Lloyd's earlier uh, exploits in amassing amounts of cops on screen. So I guess it's uh, more is more. But I feel actually more is less because Lloyd had way more inventive stuff to do with all the cops. Yeah, I agree. It's a lo- it's a lot of running in these movies with Buster. He does some uh, bits like a jigsaw balancing act uh, in Cops and uh, an, an interesting experiment with a ladder in uh, Daydreams uh, that are pretty funny. But uh, for most parts, um, it's mainly chases. Um, and I feel like it's a pretty underwhelming year for Buster. I mean, I watched uh, Pale Face... The Frozen North and The Electric House as well. And all of these are pretty much, uh, you know, small comedy set pieces only. He does tumble down a mountain in Pale Face in a very <laughs> uh, wacky way. And he flies into a, into a tree, uh, which is pretty nice. Uh, but otherwise, not that much to talk about. Uh, except a very funny scene in The Frozen North where he supposedly did a parody of a melodrama um, plotting where he enters his house in Alaska, sees a woman and uh, a man kissing, and he becomes all broken-hearted. He thinks it's his wife. He shoots them both down, uh, goes up and investigates their bodies, and looks into the camera and goes, that's not my wife. That was the, uh, that was the gag of the movie, I would say. I did like the opening that, that he arrives at the subway station in Alaska. And in the electric house, there's a lot of uh, inventions uh, with el- electricity. A, a house is being uh, has these uh, weird inventions, like a, a pool table that is electric and the, and the balls are going up the walls in different uh, alleyways, stuff like that. So I for safety measures, I just briefly checked in on what Charlie Chaplin was up to as well. I checked out Payday, and I gotta say, it's actually brilliantly staged and executed, but uh, not much action-related. And there were some highly suggestive titles of movies that I haven't been able to uh, shake down. Of course, Barb Wire is of interest of Pod Hard. It was one of the earliest movies we watched, <laughs> Pamela Anderson's version. <laughs> it was the earliest movie. It was our first movie, which is a weird choice for a first movie. Yeah, post James <laughs> Bond, of course. And then there was Bulldog Drummond, which seems to be a uh, recurring character, I think, Maybe we will dabble with him in the 30s. Might have some action elements. I don't know. But uh, my favorite was probably The Leather Pushers, round two. <laughs> a boxing melodrama. Okay. And there was a serial called uh, The Timber Queen, starring Ruth Roland. Roland. Uh, I saw a clip with a pretty cool train sequence. <laughs> There's always these train sequences in the serials. But it was it was pretty cool. She was standing on the roof of the train and it was careening uh, like crazy through a, a very um, turny rail up in the mountains. And there was a guy swinging in on a rope 
uh, picking her up in in speed. It's pretty cool, but I haven't found an an whole episode of this one. You've uh, watched a Japanese movie as well, haven't you? Yeah, I was I managed to dig out one of the Japanese ones. So I watched Shibukawa Bangoro. It seems to be a, some sort of biopic on the life of uh, Shibukawa Bangoro, a founder of a school of jiu-jitsu. It's just a few episodes from his uh, life, I suppose. It's a bit hard to follow because the version I found was without subtitles. And there's both intertitles and there's voiceover in the whole movie. A, a wom- woman actor doing all the voices. I guess emulating the feeling of a, a banshee performance that we were talking about last episode. Mm, yeah, a banshee would be like a li- live act performer in front of the screen uh, telling the audience what is going on on the screen and telling them of the characters um, their uh, motivations and their feelings and stuff like that yeah so here she mostly seemingly does the dialogue for all characters in this version and she i gotta say she excels at drunken loudmouth samurais (laughs) <laughs> which feature a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, there's uh, a lot of fights. And, and there's uh, drunk bastards harassing some woman and a guy with a hat big as a bathtub bring it up. And we get uh, maybe one of the earliest mixed martial art tournaments on film. This is an early blood sport. <laughs> First blood sport, people. And, and a really cool fight in a dark room where they have to uh, feel their way trying to find each other. And when they do have contact, they start to grapple. So lots of fights, one in the moonlight as well. So pretty nice ideas, but uh, they're, they're all just uh, single take, uh, long shot variations. 36 minutes in a giant spider appears, which was a bit surprising. Up to this, it has been a pretty realistic uh, movie and he's fighting a a woman turns into a web slinging kabuki demon and a big spider and there's uh, spider web everywhere anyway it all ends with a a, a pretty brutal sword fight up in the rocky mountains that was pretty cool it reminded me a bit of uh, king who who we will be returned to uh, later in the use of uh, environment and, and nature to frame action we thought that we would have our main number the new douglas fairbanks movie unfortunately it was really really boring this year he made uh, robin hood or as it's uh, called douglas fairbanks in robin hood since they were so afraid of uh, copycats that they wanted to make sure that the audience knew this is the douglas fairbanks movie And you want to watch Douglas Fairbanks, of course. But unfortunately, this is one plot-heavy movie. It never ends with intertitles, people running around, uh, not running around, standing and uh, maybe looking at each other. Uh, I, I, I was so disappointed. Yeah, on that mission to show that silent movies can be fun, this one... Uh... <laughs> doesn't prove our point. <laughs> it's unfortunate because this movie has the perhaps the most impressive sets of the movie industry up until now. They built like the entire <laughs> landscape 
uh, in the studio lot. So they had like the the castle of the sheriff the sheriff of Nottingham, and they had they built a forest with the Robin Hood's lair, and I mean it's crazy huge sets. Yeah, it's very big sets and huge crowds. I guess we're talking Italian-level bombasm here. Very inspired by the earlier Italian blockbusters. Absolutely. And actually, that a, a fun thing about this is that the sets were so impressive that they actually invited people in for a sort of uh, get a preview of the movie. They had like guided tours to the sets during a recording of the movie. So it was sort of a, like a, a live version of Universal Studios where you could uh, follow Robin Hood's arrow and there would be like a, a trail uh, through the sets. And you could perhaps, if you were lucky, see Douglas Fairbanks uh, record a scene or something. That was pretty special for the time, and it would be pretty special for today as well. And I think this movie cost like one million dollars, which of course is a huge sum for 1922. But they uh, they got back double that sum uh, in um, in ticket sales. This was Douglas Fairbanks' uh, biggest movie. I would say that the funniest thing about this movie actually isn't the movie itself. It's the publicity stunts that Douglas Fairbanks uh, did for the movie. Um, he went to New York, um, where a lot of photographers were collected, and they were supposed to take pictures of him on top of a building in New York where he was uh, in full Robin Hood uh, makeup and clothes where he uh, would be holding a bow and arrow and where the photographers would take pictures and when they were finished him being Douglas Fairbanks and sort of like uh, I don't give a fuck he let loose of the arrow and the arrow found its way into a window and into the chest of a tailor Fortunately, the arrow had gone such a long distance that it had been slowed down. So when the arrow hit him, it hit him right below the chest and the ribs. It didn't penetrate him that deep. But he was, of course, uh, shocked. What the F is going on? I've been hit by an arrow high on New York uh, street level. I mean, what is going on? And when he found out, he was, of course, uh, furious. But when he found out that he'd been hit by Douglas Fairbanks, he was overjoyed. (laughs) So Douglas Fairbanks actually a danger to society. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, uh, of course, he uh, paid him a lot of money and... He also invited him out to dinner to um, sort of uh, (laughs) uh, sway him. And sway him, he did. So yeah, Douglas Fairbanks continuing being a weird-ass person. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, lock him up. Lock him up. Um, So the movie, just gonna say some things about it. I thought it was uh, quite interesting, the, um, the tournament that opens the movie where the guy of Gisborne meets up with Robin Hood and they do this jousting thing at each other and uh, I mean the guy of Gisborne gets hit and his horse and himself do like a double pratfall that is amazing I've never seen something like it yeah horses did have a hard time in, in the stunt business 
Yeah, I mean, the horse gets the heavy load here. I mean, that looks... Uh, I don't know what to say. It does walk away from the scene. I mean, Western movies are up and running parallel. We, we've kind of missed them. They've been uh, running since, I guess, the train robbers uh, churning them out. And I guess the horses are... Uh, churned out as well or something after he wins uh, he is uh, talking to the king and the king says oh and you need to go and have a talk with uh, maid marion or something like that but uh, robin hood wants nothing of it he says exempt me sire i am afeard of women yeah and the women flocks around him and he is aghast he tries to get away and the king throws him back into this pack of women hundreds now chasing him he he jumps in the water to get away i guess swims away and later when popping up uh, again he sees a woman doing the laundry by the lake and cries another woman and dives again you reckon this is uh, part of the legend or the chronicle of robin hood I mean, the intertext in the opening is pretty funny where it says history in its ideal state is a compound of legend and chronicle. Okay, yeah, that's weird. Um... Uh, Like in The Three Musketeers, it starts with these uh, romanticized texts of yearning of times past of when men were men and built castles and stuff and uh, chopped each other down. It's all very metal, isn't it? Yeah, I guess. I guess. So anyway, like an hour and 15 minutes pass, and finally Robin Hood becomes Robin Hood. Yeah, I guess you can say this is the movie that gives very thorough backstory to the Earl of Huntingdon, or what's his name is. <laughs> Huntingdon, I think. Yeah, that's a name. I, I think he's named the Robin of Loxley in later movies. Not sure about the Huntingdon part, but that... Maybe was... uh, No, I think they invented it for this movie. But it could be of interest if you want to know what he was doing before he became Robin Hood. This is the movie to delve deep into that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be sure to use uh, clothes... What do you call them? Klädnip or... Be sure to use something to hold your eyes up so you don't fall asleep because... This first hour and uh, a quarter is uh, so goddamn boring. But I mean, at the big banquet or party or what the hell, I thought King Richard was eating a giant squid there and feeding his dogs with it as well. And they also introduced this Gisborne and John as two drunk bastards. And we get a Fairbank scene where he does that Fairbank thing, jumping some friends and wrestle them. He even tries to strangle one of his friends in a in a happily merry way. Yeah, but but that's when he's Robin Hood, isn't it? No, it's here when he at the party, I think. Oh no, no, the strangling is later. But here he wrestles a, a couple of friends. Oh, okay, okay. It's it's early on. I I missed that. But but I did see when he was Robin Hood and practiced shooting with arrows and he hit everything and he became so happy that he strangled a guy next to him. <laughs> Q Robin Hood craziness. Nah. The scenes when they show that everything has gone to hell in, in England uh, are pretty brutal. I mean, everything gets tinted blue. Bodies are hanging everywhere. And we get two pretty brutal uh, torturing scenes. I think they 
lobotomize a guy with a hot poker for shooting a boar. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and they whip uh, a woman for spurning Prince John's addresses. I wish the movie had had more of these uh, tonal shifts between the jolly and the savage. Basically, the first action scene, a chase uh, around here, is one hour 20 minutes into the movie. Uh, that's unforgivable. But it's a, it's an okay action scene. I mean, uh, Douglas Fairbanks does his usual shtick. He runs around in, in the castle uh, taunting guards and getting everybody to chase him. And he slides down big curtains and uh, jolly marries around uh, on top of things. And he, he hangs up people uh, in doorways as well, which I thought was very funny. And when he makes his daring escape, we're being introduced to his uh, buddies. Yeah, Will, Scarlet, Fry, Tuck and uh, Little John. They throw around a guy and throws him up a tree. And then we're introduced to the whole uh, squad in, out in the Sherwood school. School. <laughs> school. <laughs> out in the Sherwood woods. They're like a pack of jolly gnomes or something, just <laughs> jumping about. Gnomes. I mean, it's a great way to introduce Alan Dale, uh, the singer of the, of the squad, where Robin sees him sleeping and shoots his hat off. Yeah, so they are playfully frolicking about in the woods. When suddenly he is exclaiming, it's a good time to take the town. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he goes to town. Yeah, he goes to town. Oh, okay. What happens in town? Yeah, what happens in town? I don't know. I mean, the big set piece in the taking of the town is uh, John's men passing one by one through a small door, getting clobbered in the head and shoved down a well. Yeah, I thought it was pretty funny. I mean, everybody uh, charges through this door and uh, Robin Hood and his buddies stand at the side of the door on the other side and just clobbers people when they're passing by. So that's funny. <laughs> I think it goes on a bit too long. But I like that there's uh, legs uh, sticking up from the well. Well, he's a precursor to the Monty Python school that if you take a joke too far... It becomes funny again at the end. They go back to Sherwood for some reason. I don't know why didn't they just storm the castle. Then the movie wouldn't be two hours and uh, ten minutes. And we wouldn't get a stranger appears to either join the gang or slay Robin. And has a brief duel with sticks with uh, Friar Tuck to show his uh, stuff. I'll knock your scop, Friar Tuck says. Yeah. Pretty good staff fight. Yeah, it's okay. Short but sweet. Meanwhile, Robin is uh, alone in the castle. What's going on? Yeah, at 1.57, he's climbing the closing drawbridge. The big stunt. That's the, that's the big stunt of the movie. If you see Douglas Fairbanks' compilations of his stunts, you'll see this one where he climbs a huge drawbridge and then proceeds climbing the chain of the drawbridge as well. Yeah, and some running and climbing. And then a short, uh, yet again, but brutal fight with Gisborne. And we actually witness some progress in the incorporation of props here. It is actually used for a reason... Uh, <laughs> 
unlike earlier where they just threw a couple of shares around. He's unarmed and defends himself with a share and then he catches uh, Grisborne's sword and bends it out of his grip with, with the help of a share or something as well. And then he savagely and brutally breaks Grisborne's spine around a pillar. <laughs> Yeah, that that's that's a weird shot. <laughs> <laughs> really real shot, but using the environment as weapon. And apparently this was one of uh, Fairbanks' first ideas for the movies. He ordered all of these sets and when he went to a um, vacation in Europe when they were building. So when they came back, they were pretty much uh, finished with the sets and he hadn't seen anything. And he was super surprised at how huge everything was. And he was like, oh man, you took me literally when I said I wanted the best and biggest sets of the silent film era. Um, And when he saw the sets and the pillars, he thought, oh yeah, I know exactly how I'm going to finish the bad guy off. I'm going to butcher him towards a pillar. Very weird. And then the movie pretty much is over. I mean, he gets uh, captured by Prince John and is um, he is about to be uh, penetrated by like 20 arrows. But uh, then this mysterious uh, knight character that battled Friar Tuck appears uh, and shields him with his massive shield when the arrows comes. And of course, it's Richard Lionheart. Oh my god. Who would have thunk? And then the king disturbs Marion and and, uh, Robin Hood at their wedding night for no apparent reason. He just stands and knocks the door and doesn't give up. Yeah, and that's where we end the movie. (laughs) I gotta get in there. I gotta get in there. Well, so, I mean, of course, there are are small things uh, to enjoy in this movie, of course. But as a whole, it's uh, one of the worst Fairbanks movies I've seen. Yeah, so the action movie of 1922, uh, of of the ones we've seen, at least. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty hard uh, researching action cinema at this point because it doesn't exist as a genre yet. But I would say it's more or less fully formed. It's just not called action movies yet. We did manage to see one movie that was actually pretty good, had a lot of action and a lot of fun stuff. And it's actually a parody of a Douglas Fairbanks movie. The Three Must Get Theirs. A parody of The Three Musketeers. We kind of mentioned Max Linder in passing in an earlier episode. And maybe we made an error there. I don't know, because uh, he's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we watched pretty... Not that much at all of Max Linder. And he made a lot of short uh, movies in the tens. And he was widely popular, especially in Europe. I mean, I watched a couple and they were leaning more towards uh, comedy and didn't have that much physical stuff. But then I kind of left him. I just briefly went back uh, last night to Seven Years Bad Luck from 1921. And it had a wonderful variation on this uh, walking out in speeding traffic Uh, scene that uh, Harold Lloyd also excelled at (laughs) but Linder's precise and clean lines in his body language lends it an an refinement that I was thinking was both kind of awe-inspiring and fun he's very exact in his uh, in how he moves 
Yeah, and Max Linder was the main influence on Charlie Chaplin. And so when uh, Max Linder died in 1925, uh, Charlie Chaplin closed down his movie studio for a day to um, give credit to Max Linder. And the three must-get-thers, I guess it's Max Linder's last movie. I think he makes uh, sort of like a, a weird semi-comedy in, in France uh, the year next. But uh, he was um, plagued by depression since he had been part of the First uh, World War. And he had been doused in gas... And he had been hospitalized for like a half year or something. And he was traumatized by all of the um, horrible stuff he saw during the war. And he never really got back from that. And I guess that's why he committed suicide in 1925. But let's not uh, go down on a sad note. Let's uh, go up again on a great note. Because The Three Must Get Theirs is a smashing movie actually. And I think it's a really smart move for him to just... Uh, I mean, The Three Musketeers came 1921. And uh, a year later, he makes a, a parody. And he can just reference scenes from the earlier one. And just skip the plodding plotting altogether. It f- almost feels like a throwback to that more non-narrative cinema of movement that we have talked highly of but the storytelling is still there by proxy (laughs) because we've seen we saw the three musketeers uh, so recently so it's really easy following the the plot as well so it's it's pretty genius i would say (laughs) the the structuring yeah i mean this movie is uh, 40 minutes long um and i I think The Three Musketeers was like uh, one hour and 45 minutes or something like that. So, I mean, that's genius. 40 minutes, that's perfect for a movie, I would say. <laughs> you, you don't have time to get bored or something. Uh, and everything rushes through the story. And you get a lot of great pratfalls and stunts and comedy. He's like an early Mel Brooks only very concise and I would say much, much funnier. So his character is called Dart In Again and has a lovely Fairbanks-esque smile. Uh, I would say better smile than Fairbanks, actually. Uh, Max Linder is a very beautiful man, I have to say. And uh, he's leaving his, uh, his dad to be a musketeer, just like in the original movie. But he has a hard time leaving his dad. Both are overcome with emotion. And he he jumps back into his daddy's arms. And uh, like the dad is carrying him uh, with both his arms. It's uh, a fantastic uh, scene. Which is followed by a weird, weird scene where uh, (laughs) Dart Inagain's horse has sort of like... um, Fallen in love with a cow. What is going on, Anders? I have no idea. But the <laughs> I mean, this horse is almost the main star of the movie. A really funny horse. Yeah, I mean, later on, uh, not that later on, but we see Dart in again fighting with something, and the ca- something is blocking the camera. I think two thirds of the screen is blacked. So we only see Dart in again uh, fighting something with the sword. 
And then uh, the black thing is being pushed away and reveals uh, the rest of the screen. And we see that he's fighting his uh, horse, which is uh, fighting with its back hooves. Fantastic scene as well. And meanwhile, all of this is happening. We see Richelieu plotting his uh, revenge on the king while stroking the head of a bald guy. Not really a bald guy, because he has like three or four hairs. He has like a Homer Simpson hair, and he's stroking it with the intent. And this guy that has this bald head, I mean, he is beautifully funny. Uh, he has such a fantastic facial expression. Yeah, that face. And I mean, it, it's such a funny, odd callback to the original Three Musketeers when he was scheming and planning and, and waiting for his plan to be set in motion. He was uh, doing this thing with his hand on on his armchair. So the armchair is switched to, <laughs> to this Homer Simpson-haired, uh, beautiful man. <laughs> That's one of the best comedy bits of all time, I would say, actually. That is uh, just amazing. And uh, so Dartin again gets to Paris. He gets uh, into a beef with a guy. And the guy charges him with his sword. And Dartin again catches the sword with his hands and breaks it. Yeah, that's a really short, uh, sweet uh, action scene. But I mean, the story is mostly referencing uh, the Three Musketeers, but just do these uh, short, well-found sketches of them. So we get the scene where uh, Dartin again gets to the Musketeers, and uh, everybody's uh, brawling with each other, fencing, and he uh, sort of uh, evades everybody and dances up the stairs in a very fantastic way, simply. He's great. What athleticism. He's uh, almost as good as Fairbanks. Later on when he sees... Uh, there, there's the exact same scene as in The Musketeers where Dart Inigan is watching out of a window and sees a crook that he encountered earlier and he rushes down through the Musketeer um, house uh, and he bumps into Arthos, Porthos, and uh, Dar- uh, Aramis. Only they're called something weird, I guess. Yeah, Octopus, uh, <laughs> and I don't remember the other, other two. Okay, so Octopus and his uh, musketeer friends. Here he makes a great jump onto the back of a guy from the stairs, and then he glides under this guy's legs. Yeah, the acrobatics in this one is pretty cool, actually how he enters the scene uh, when when he's coming for the duel with the musketeers he comes uh, jumping on top of a a wall and just jumps right down from pretty high height so the same thing happens here as in the movie he starts fighting the musketeers but then uh, richelieu's uh, men come to uh, fight them all they uh, team up and uh, start uh, fighting and this is a great scene, I think. You have uh, Dartin again. After he kills a guy, he like uh, stomps on his belly so that his stiff dead leg charges up into the air so Dartin again can polish his sword on this guy's boot, which is an amazingly funny picture. Two of the musketeers 
they simply they simply stand around shaking uh, each other's uh, hands. That's all they do during this entire fight, which is, I guess, a couple of minutes long. They're turning around and then they, oh man, we should shake hands. Oh, we go back, shake hands. Oh yeah, let's go into the fight. No, let's shake hands. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and, and I mean, the, the, the fighting is actually pretty decent, I think. Of course, they're, they're waving the swords like crazy, but uh, I think it's pretty pretty nifty as well. It does seem like Max Linder is a pretty good fencer, actually. I, I mean, it lacks that uh, intense aggressiveness of the Fairbanks fights where, they, where he just uh, pummels people and is kind of arrogant and they throw things at each other. But this is a bit more classical maybe cleaner yeah 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 this this is sword fighting um, like i would imagine they do in the 30s in like errol flynn movies where it's more a classic duel and they're you know uh, waving swords at each other great stuff actually and and he swings a lasso and catches a whole bunch of guys with the lasso uh, attaches the the rope to his horse and the horse <laughs> gallops away with this uh, knotted bunch of guys that is being dragged after. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a lot of different fights actually. Um, he fights another guy when they're in the bar boasting about their exploits and there's like a sergeant or something from Richelieu comes in and challenges uh, Dartin again to a new fight. And as he is fighting this guy, because he is uh, superior to him in every way, he professes his love for a woman mid-fight. So he's fighting this guy while doing some, uh, you know, proclaiming poetry to a woman, which is uh, a beautiful, beautiful scene. There's another great scene where Dartin again lies in bed with his sword in hand. Uh, someone is at the door, he hides in the curtains. It's the girl that he likes that comes into the room. He charges out from the curtains and the curtains have become clothes on him. So he's fully draped in like uh, a fantastic velvety morning gown outfit. And his buddies, the three musketeers, they lie in the same bed, also with their swords in the air. Oh yeah, he calls them in a telephone and everybody uses a fire pole to get down and to the rescue. And there's a lot of phones and later on a motorcycle and a carriage that looks like a car but is carried. So it's a lot of anachronisms uh, and there's also a band that is playing saxophones and I don't think they were invented in the 16th, 17th uh, century. On the way back from England, skipping ahead a bit, they inject the horse with morphine <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and the movie becomes uh, slow motion. It was pretty... Uh, it, it was a funny gag. Yeah, 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 yeah. Prior to this, we get this uh, amazing, um, what do you call it? When they're um, riding and everybody, all of the musketeers are being dropped off by shots. They cut to Richelieu pulling out hairs from this fantastic um, bald guy's head. So he's pulling out all of the Homer Simpson hairs, but he can't pull out the last hair because uh, Dartin again refuses to go down. And once again, it, it mirrors uh, exactly that cross-cutting in, in The Three Musketeers. I would really recommend to have seen uh, Fairbanks Musketeers before seeing this one. 
uh, yeah, and uh, we get the final duel at the end, and uh, everybody kills each other, <laughs> I guess. One detail I, I really uh, enjoyed in this last prolonged fight is that uh, Max Linders uh, dart in again. He loses his breath because the fight goes on for so long. That was awesome, because now in, in modern action films, uh, been a few fights where people seemingly get tired. I mean, Old Boy and that one in Daredevil, uh, the TV series, e- everyone loves that uh, the hero gets uh, winded. <laughs> so we, we get uh, the, the earliest uh, version of that, I guess, <laughs> that we have seen. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Max Linder... What an uh, action hero. Linder and Lloyd carries the action torch in 1922. So yeah, that uh, pretty much uh, sums up uh, the year of 1922 for us, I guess. A pretty underwhelming year, but uh, there are some high points. But I think next year will be much, much better. Because next year Buster Keaton starts making feature movies. So we get our hospitality uh, and we also get Harold Lloyd's uh, classic uh, safety last so uh, get ready for awesomeness <laughs>